This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman here along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today is Tuesday, July 19th, 2022, and we are recording this podcast. Uh, Today, our guest is none other than Lynn Alden. Lynn is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, uh, where she provides financial research to retail as well as institutional investors. Um, she has a very unique background, I think. Well, it's pretty common, I guess. These they're more common these days. But having a background that blends engineering and finance together, uh, some of us have degrees in financial engineering, which means we just kind of monkey around with math. Uh, but ultimately, she fun- focuses on fundamental investing, and so uh, I think it's a, we'll have a great conversation today talking about the global macro landscape um, and really covering uh, a lot of different asset classes today as well. So, Lynn, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. So um, the spotlight's yours. Why don't you give us a little intro on who you are, uh, how you got into the world of finance from having this degree in engineering and this background in engineering, and what what leads you to really do the research you do today? I appreciate that. So yeah, my name's Lynn Alden, and I, I basically my my focus is on providing independent analysis. So uh, you know, uh, retail investors read it, institutional investors read it, and I kind of summarize what I try to do is take kind of institutional type of research, but then put it into plain English, uh, which is which is useful for people who are kind of across, you know, and, and different types of investing spheres. Um, and my, you know, my interest in, in markets started when I was like a, a kid, uh, just from the beginning. And I was, you know, I was like that, that kid that would read the Wall Street Journal or would, you know, could tell you what the, what the Nikkei uh, was at, you know. Um, and so your, it was just something your first that's... experience in financial bubbles, the Nikkei, yeah? Yes. And, and so, you know, I was always interested in, in the concepts. And, you know, when I went to university, I ended up going into engineering instead, just because my other passion was science, technology, math. Um, and I, I worked in that field for over a decade, uh, uh, mostly in the aviation uh, industry, also the automation industry a little bit. Um, I started to blend that financial background in the sense that I, I then pursued a master's in engineering management, focusing on financial modeling, uh, started kind of shifting to to handle the financial side of our of our engineering uh, division, uh, and then I eventually uh, left that to pursue full time, uh, just providing you know kind of uh, independent research. So I, I try to sometimes I cover technology stuff, uh, kind of tying into that background directly, but also what I do is I, I kind of provide systems analysis to the markets in a similar way that I would any sort of engineering system. And so it's kind of just a, a different way of looking at markets uh, and, and kind of shares that quantitative background. Yeah, so what, what do you think is uh, a benefit of having that kind of STEM type of background when coming into to doing this type of analysis? I think one is what I just touched on, which is kind of looking at it from a fresh angle. Um, and so, you know, we all have these like models uh, and if everyone kind of learns the same models and everyone's kind of like looking at things the same way, you know, all models are imperfect. Uh, some are more imperfect than others. Uh, and so if you're just kind of like starting from a whole nother set of principles, uh, you might see things that other people don't see. And of course you might miss things that other people don't miss, uh, but at least it's a, it's a different perspective on the whole thing. Uh, I think engineering is one of the more uh, successful disciplines, right? I mean, there, there's, a lot of other disciplines, it's like hard to kind of prove things over time. Whereas engineering is interesting because it's it's very it's very outcome oriented, right? You you yep. build something, you iterate, um, and I think that that type of that rigor is useful when you, when you come to financial markets. Yeah, no, absolutely. <clears throat> it, it definitely is a different world too, and and I like how you said that too. It's not. Um, you know, for a while I, I was a pure mathematician and so studying, you know, uh, pure mathematics is just, it's, it's just brutal, right? I mean, you're proving things left and right, or, or you're trying to at least. And, 
you know, at the end of the day, all you need to get back to is the basic tenets, what you learned in, in basic algebra and everything too. So um, it kind of felt like a fruitless exercise, but uh, definitely helped on that analytical rigor. So so let's transition and, and let's move on to the macro landscape. So, um, you know, there's lots of talk out there today, uh, looking at the economic data. We saw, you know, some of the slowest numbers we've seen out of China um, uh, reported last week. Um, we're seeing U.S. slowdown here as well. Uh, GDP now, according to the Atlanta Fed, says that we're going to contract again in the second quarter. What are you seeing from the macro economy right now? And you know, kind of how are you thinking about the, through your prism today? I think you just summarized it well. I mean, if, if we were to look at one chart for macro, it'd probably be like the, you know, the purchasing managers index, right? Mm -hmm. So PMI cycles. Basically, you have this like roughly three-year sine wave. Mm -hmm. uh, and right, you know, ever since, uh, you know, 2021, we've been in a pretty clear uh, economic deceleration. Yeah. Uh, and every time you have a deceleration, you, you don't know if it's going to return into an outright recession, you know, an, an economic contraction, but you know, it's decelerating that that is a bunch of market implications, uh, generally more defensive type things do better in that type of environment. This one's interesting because, you know, again, that really kind of repeated cycle, but, but of course, every Every one of those three-year PMI cycles is going to be a little bit different, and this one is perhaps more different than usual because it's the most inflationary one in a while. Normally, uh, declining PMI periods are disinflationary, yes. but you know now that we have uh, you know pretty severe energy bottlenecks and all sorts of other factors combined with some of the effects from the, all that fiscal stimulus still branching out and, and touching all the things that it's eventually going to touch, uh, this was an interesting one because bonds did particularly bad. When normally they they do reasonably well uh, in a declining PMI environment, uh, and so that is that has been a curveball, an inflationary decelerating environment, basically stagflation. Haven't really seen that type of environment since the 70s. So most people trading today are relying on history books and and things like that rather than direct personal experience uh, in that type of market. Uh, and I think that that really summarizes it. Basically, we have this these supply side problems combined with prior stimulus which is causing a very interesting type of deceleration. And we pulled back on stimulus, which is part of why we're having that deceleration now. Um, but the, the inflationary effects are still there from it and other factors. And I think the, the bigger picture, kind of the zooming out picture, I like to refer to Ray Dalio's long-term debt cycle thesis. Mm -hmm. I've, I've kind of, you know, I heard that years ago, I kind of took the ball and run with it. I, I, I analyzed that, I kind of reconstructed all the data. I look at that from from a perspective. So that kind of ties into the whole, you know, on the cultural side, you have kind of the fourth turning type of environment. On the on the macro side, you have more, the more way to quantify it, which is the long-term debt cycle. And I think that's kind of the big picture background with what we're in. But within that bigger environment, we're in this kind of down cycle. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the fourth turning there too. I've been having a lot of more conversations about that that concept too, and just especially as as we talk about the new generation of employees that um, just giving my age cohort, it's kind of like now we're more akin to those that we're hiring now, right? Just because again, that, that generational difference. But, um, you know, as you think about this too, um, you know, there's a lot of call out there for a recession, right? In the US and that we're, you know, there's, there's either a, a lot of folks saying that it's imminent or we're already in one, but this is, as you said, a very different cycle. And so, how are you thinking about that? Do you think we are in a recession? Do you think we're on the precipice of one? Or are there other data points that you look at that give you more hope than just saying, we're going to look at GDP? I think we're in a malaise. And I think that could be characterized as so far a mild recession. Mm -hmm. um, the, obviously, the one thing that's not really rolled over yet is labor. Uh, it's softened, certainly, but it's not it's not rolled over. But that's not that's not uncommon in recession. Sometimes you don't have unemployment really weaken until you're already uh, in hindsight, months into a recession. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, the technical, uh, you know, two quarters in a row of, of negative real GDP growth. I mean, we, you know, we seem to be crossing that bridge now. Yeah. Uh, most economic recessions line up with, with that more technical, you know, kind of a rule of thumb. And so I think that however you want to describe it, we're either in a near recession or, or, you know, some degree of outright recession. Um, one way to look at the labor market is it's, it's not just an unemployment that matters. It's also real wages, right? So wages went up at a, at a you know, multi-decade high pace, but it's actually farther below the inflation rate than normal. So in, in some sense, most people got a pay cut in real terms. They can buy less stuff. 
And so that's another type of labor weakness, right? So it, it, it's easy to keep people employed if you're paying them below market rates. Um, and, and so that's kind of what we're seeing now where you can imagine a different world where all those wages were higher, but then fewer people were employed, right? And so there's there's different release valves for for weak labor. And I think that one's maybe being under under realized or undercounted uh, uh, compared to people that are just looking at, say, the unemployment rate or things like that. So I, I do think that the labor market is actually, you know, it, it's one of the stronger sides of it, but it, it's pretty clearly weakening to some extent. So I actually do think that we're we're probably in a recession now, um, but I, I try to avoid, you know, whether or not Ember is going to call it one in hindsight, we'll, we'll see. But I, I think more or less, yes, we're in kind of a, at least a mild recession. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned, you mentioned Ember there. Uh, sorry, uh, I'll let you ask the question, Sam. But you mentioned Ember there, and I just thought it was great that by the time they declared the recession back in 2020, it was like a year after the fact, and they said it only happened for two months. So by the time yeah. they actually said we were in one, I mean, we all knew we were in one, right? But uh, it, it, it's it's a, that's one thing that you said where people are learning from history books. It's like, oh, yeah, well, if I know we're in a recession, this is the playbook. But the problem is it gets defined after it's already happened. So yeah. uh, anyway, uh, I just I, I wanted to comment on that. So anyway, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, I guess that conversation about calling the recession and getting it right, you know, as uh, as economists or analysts, it's always verified well in the hindsight. So it's at best you can tell yourself and pat yourself on the back like a year or two later and say, hey, I got it. But uh you know, investing through that time is actually much different. But uh, you know, a number of the things that you mentioned are longer term factors that have been in play and developing, you know, over the last 10 years on the back of fiscal stimulus, easy monetary policy. And it just seems like that is the playbook to cure the economy every time we go into contraction. And that kind of brought us to where we are now, where we're dealing with these decade, 40, dec four decade high uh, levels in consumer price inflation. So Given that that seems to be the go-to in terms of the playbook to, to bring us out of economic contraction, and we're still dealing with inflation from some of that stimulus, but then also the things that you mentioned, there's been a fundamental underinvestment in the supply of energy across the board, you know, not only here in the U.S., but you know, in the counterparts across um, both oceans, I guess you can say. Uh, so with that, we're going to be supply constrained on energy as well, it seems like, going forward. So, you know, how are you reading the tea leaves right now? I mean, what you know, we, we're seeing ourselves in a slowing economy. We're probably going to go back to some form of stimulus, if not both on the monetary and fiscal side. We're going to still have these supply side issues in terms of at least from, from the energy side, if not from other supply chains. What is your overall, I guess, your medium to long-term outlook, you know, beyond just what happens in the rest of 2022 or even 2023? So medium to long term, I have a, a generally inflationary outlook. I think this is on average going to be a more inflationary decade than the prior decade. Um, but just like other inflationary decades, I think there will be higher periods and lower periods. You know, there will be there will be recessions, contractions, uh, maybe more disinflationary types of periods within that structurally inflationary type of decade. Uh, in terms of fiscal stimulus, you know, we we do have a risk of seeing gridlock. Uh, for the next couple of years, uh, you know, if you kind of back test pl different political environments, which is even which is even more than we have today, because it's pretty grid. It's been pretty gridlocked yeah. for a while, right? Exactly. It's all, yeah. it's already pretty gridlocked now. It's potentially going to get more gridlocked. Yeah. And generally, if you have a you know a blue president, red Congress, that that's a pretty that's that's uh, among the various combinations you can have. That's that's um, basically the more more gridlocked type of environment usually. Uh, it, it's more gridlocked than the other way around usually, and it's also more gridlocked than if you have alignment. Um, uh, one way or the other. So that's an interesting risk. If you go into a pretty pretty weak environment and you have a fiscal gridlock that you know it's hard to get anything constructive through. Um, if we zoom out really big picture, I think that one way one thing that I use when I describe the long-term debt cycle is that it kind of comes in like a one-two punch. There's a disinflationary private debt bubble that kind of pops. And that's a you know it's a more structural popping than your your typical recession. So that uh, examples with that would be the 1929 crash and then the subsequent early 30s uh, depression, uh, as well as the 2008 pop and then the whole basically a good chunk of the 2010s decade was a slower growth type of environment. And those are you know you have big disinflationary sometimes outright deflationary. You know, you know, private debt gets partially liquidated. You have a period of disinflation because you have commodity oversupply. Uh, you know, you're running at, at below 
uh, prior trend economic growth levels. Uh, generally, those types of environments have rising populism and, and just, you know, unhappiness as people are frustrated with the with the economic environment. And then whenever obviously whenever you have a zero sum game, you're good, then you're gonna get also more international conflict or more just kind of changing order of how things are structured. And the problem there is that you know after a long enough time frame, when you have the combination of economic malaise, rising populism, and you slowly start working out that commodity oversupply or that that capacity oversupply. Uh, you, you start to kind of get into a more inflationary type environment. And the catalyst can be some, you know, could be a war, could be a pandemic. Obviously, the, the catalyst can differ. But since you already have a fragile system, you're then prone to get a lot of fiscal. Uh, and that that's the more inflationary. That actually brings broad money supply up a lot quicker than just, you know, say, monetary stimulus alone. And then also because you don't have that commodity oversupply anymore. Um, you haven't invested a lot into new commodity production. Uh, you have pretty real supply side constraints since you have a more inflationary type of environment. And so for that reason, I've kind of used the, and then you have a you know, more of a public debt bubble uh, as opposed to a private debt bubble. And so I've been using the analogy that in many ways, the 2010s were a lot like the 1930s, uh, less severe, but, but similar. And the 2020s are a lot like the 1940s so far. We, we, you know, the, the initial pandemic finance financing looked a lot like wartime finance. Uh, and of course, now geopolitically, we have some degree of actual war happening, uh, you know, fighting over basically a zero sum pie in terms of commodities and, and, and just resources out there. And so I, I generally view this as the more inflationary stage of that long term debt cycle kind of unfolding. And that's what kind of marks this part of the cycle is an unusually wide gap between interest rates and inflation uh, on, a, on a pretty persistent basis, because when you have that much debt in the system, generally some degree of, of currency devaluation is how it's handled. Yeah. So as, as you as you think through that, too, and, and you, uh, you you bring out the the differential between, you know, inflation and yield. So, you know, just significantly negative real yields is the way to think about it. Um, what what do you think actually can reverse course on this? I mean, we always hear about the central banks, you know, they're the inflation fighters or, or they save all, uh, you know, dusted off that part of their mandate. You know, now, now there's a leak uh, today out in Reuters and Bloomberg saying that, no, the ECB is going to surprise you with the 50 basis points. Now people are saying, oh, is that the Wall Street Journal leak that we got? You know, we got the 75 last time. But I mean, it, they're pretty futile in these efforts, right? I mean, you're talking about the demand side of the equation, not the supply side. So how how does this kind of reverse course? Is this just a long repricing cycle to get there? How are you thinking about that in terms of this kind of different inflationary regime that you're speaking of? Yeah, I think it's gonna be a long repricing cycle. And I, I think the the one of the most blunt ways to put it is that when, you know, when Japan has 250% debt to GDP or Italy has 150% debt to GDP, or even the United States has 130% debt to GDP, you're, you're kind of past the point where you can have positive real rates structurally. Uh, basically, when you, when, you, when you just run the long-term math on that, yeah. uh, historically, whenever, uh, you know, public sector gets that indebted, those bonds don't realistically get paid back fully in real terms over the next, call it, 15 years. Um, you know, if it's an emerging market, you're likely to default, restructure in some way. If if the current if the debts are all in your own currency, you're likely to you know dilute it to some extent with with money printing. Because if you have a very high debt to GDP level, either public or public and private combined, um, they're they're kind of you know you can either reduce the numerator, which is defaulting or reducing the debt somehow, or there's the the denominator. You can increase the currency supply quite a bit, increase nominal GDP, mostly through the inflation component, while doing some degree of financial repression, holding rates below the inflation rate. And that's how you you essentially restructure some of the debt. Everyone kind of gets a haircut. And if they, you know, in, in their, their kind of dream scenario, they, they do it on a gradual basis. It's not disorderly. And there are some examples of that in history. Often it turns out more disorderly by some points. And I think that's essentially the playbook, but it's just politically unpalatable, and and different jurisdictions are going to handle that in different ways, um, because it's obviously you know when you have mandates to have price stability, but you're in an environment where you can't possibly have you know structurally positive real rates indefinitely with that much debt in the system, you kind of have that impossible job, and so I think that it is going to be a pretty challenging and awkward decade for central banks to navigate because. They have to, on, on one hand, 
assert that they have this under control, that, that they're going to act responsibly to maintain price stability. On the other hand, you know, going back up to positive rates essentially puts those economies into recession, that, that the debt just no longer works. It's, it becomes untenable in that sort of environment. And so you bounce back and forth between do you want recession or do you want deeply negative real rates or yeah. both because you, you can't really have, have neither. Um, and so I think that different jurisdictions are going to navigate that differently, right? So I'm, I'm, for example, more concerned about Europe than I am about Japan, although obviously both, both environments have significant risks. Uh, and so I think that's, that's going to be probably a key theme this decade is, is, is the political turmoil, the, you know, the, 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 the market challenges of these policymakers trying to, you know, navigate this inflation environment without some of the tools that, that we normally think of uh, that, that they would have to employ, that they even employed, for example, back in the 70s when debt was super low, they could raise rates super high. And just today they're in kind of a similar environment, but with, with fewer tools. Right. So, you know, you talk about the ability to default and, and one of those is kind of the silent default is the currency devaluation. Um, you know, we have the opposite situation going on in the U.S. today, right? So if you look at what's going on in the world today, I mean, yes, our central banks are more aggressive than the rest of the developed world. Um, and that's definitely not more aggressive than we see in some of the emerging economies out there uh, where they already have double digit, you know, um, uh, overnight lending rates. But if you think about the strength of the dollar today against practically almost everything else out there, what does that portend for the state of our kind of debt to GDP ratios, right? Because we're not getting, you know, these, these rates to where, you know, they're positive on the real yield basis. You don't, you have the opposite happening on the currency, right? It's, it's strengthening against, you know, almost every single pair out there. So what happens in, in that scenario today? So right now, I think we're witnessing kind of a feedback loop that's not very favorable because the, the challenge is when we have a very strong dollar, especially when it's rising quickly, that puts pressure on the whole offshore dollar market, right? So, you know, depending on what source you look at, let's call it the, the, the BIS, for example, the Bank for International Settlements, they estimate that there's like $13.5 trillion worth of dollar-dominated debt that's in offshore markets. And all of that represents demand for dollars. Uh, and it's often, you know, people might think of that as, as debt that's owed to the United States, but it's actually mostly not. For example, entities in Europe, Japan, China will lend money to other markets, uh, and it's owed to those other sources, but it's dominated in dollars. And so whenever you have this kind of global slowdown, you generally get pressure on that market because that's reliant on, on dollar-based cash flows, trade. Um, and if they're squeezed in various ways, uh, they have trouble servicing those debts. That All that debt represents demand for dollars. And so you generally get a stronger dollar uh, and it becomes self-reinforcing because a stronger dollar squeezes them. Um, and all, then they, they, they need to you know, get more dollars to cover that. And so generally what that leads to is the foreign sector selling US assets to get dollars. Because although the foreign sector has a lot of dollar-dominated debt, they also have a lot of dollar-denominated assets uh, because the United States has run you know, decades of structural trade deficits, something like you know, $14 trillion of, of accumulated uh, trade deficits since the 70s. So we have a deeply negative net international investment position. Other markets own large swaths of U.S. treasuries, U.S. corporate bonds, U.S. stocks, U.S. real estate, for example. Some of that's more liquid than others, obviously. And generally, when you get the dollar going up pretty rapidly, for example, you start to have the foreign sector uh, either stop buying treasuries or in some cases outright selling treasuries to get dollars. And that starts causing illiquidity and problems in the U.S. financial market. So ironically, a strong dollar you know, if you map that onto U.S. corporate profits or U.S. treasury market functioning or, you know, U.S. economic performance in general, that kind of ricochets back and hurts us because we're in this very interconnected world and the way we structured the global monetary system, it kind of comes back and hits us. So I think that right now, the market is basically telling the Fed that they're near, they're not at the point yet, but they're getting close to the top of the range that they can tighten before it starts breaking things. So we already see, you know, yield curve, has been flattening and in, in, in inverting. Uh, we're seeing, you know, super low consumer sentiment. We're seeing illiquidity generally and in in, in high volatility in the treasury market uh, and in, in bond markets in general. And a lot of that, I think, is a function of the strong dollar. That this that this kind of untenable gap between the dollar and some of our peers is, is kind of coming back to also hurt the U.S. I, I think obviously what gives the U.S. a lot of strength right now is the fact that we are more energy secure than say Europe, especially, but also Japan. 
Um, and so we have a number of strengths, but the, the dollar being strong is not necessarily indicative of, of good US performance. It's ironically kind of circling back to hurt us. And so that's it's one of the one of the things to watch because that can dictate how long the Fed is able to hold a very tight stance, how how high they can raise rates, how long they can do QT for, uh, that type of things. Because one of the constraints that affects it, in addition to US recession, is that treasury liquidity. Yeah. Now this is uh, this has been great, you know, Lynn, in, in terms of setting up the macroeconomic backdrop and some of the things that you know, the impact that it has on investing. Um, I feel like we can go for hours on just the macro alone, but wanted to shift gears into into the markets here. Um, you had touched on fixed income, treasuries, especially yield curves, um, currency devaluation. Be interested to hear your thoughts on crypto later on. But first, I mean, given that we're just swinging into uh, earnings season right now, we'd be interested to hear on your outlook and what you're listening for and, and some of the earnings reports that are coming out, what your thoughts are for future earnings growth and you know, perhaps valuations as well from where we are today. Yeah, so the, for the first half of the year, what we mostly had for, for the market turmoil was uh, compression valuations. So earnings and, and earning expectations were still good, but, but we had a compression in multiples you know, because we have an inflationary pressure, bond yields are going up, uh, there's more risk in the market. So valuations are being compressed. And I think the story for the second half of the year and into next year is a weaker earnings environment. Um, and so, you know, I, I went and looked at kind of a, a back test of all the different inflationary spikes over the past century or so. And generally what you see in those types of environment more often than not is kind of flattish earnings in nominal terms. Um, and, and, and that obviously is not very good in real terms um, in, in such a high inflation environment. And that's because you, know, you, you have so much cost pressures uh, on the expense side of the business and there, you know, it takes time to pass it on a consumer, especially in a decelerating weak, weaker consumer environment where they're not being given stimulus checks anymore, things like that. And so I think we're seeing increasing signs of a weaker earnings environment going forward. That doesn't mean some giant earnings crash, uh, but it means you know revising down of estimates, uh, and then you know if if price to earnings ratios, for example, if the price stays where it is, the, the PE ratio actually goes up a little bit uh, because we've already priced in um, you know this this big reduction in valuations. So I still think we have a second kind of choppy water period of equities here because you know we've had that valuation compression and I think going forward, it's going to be very company by company basis. So it's maybe not the whole market repricing things at the same time, but now it's the market seeing which sectors are, are, are you know, more threat than others. And so for, I, I'm more concerned about companies with a lot of physical uh, supply chain complexities. There's so many points along that, that, that road that can lead to higher than normal expenses, uh, especially when you combine it with weaker demand side. Um, and generally I still think you want to have relatively defensive uh, positioning overall, but it's also a type of environment where you can get a bounce because if, if some things were only pushed down so far because of that sharp increase in rates. And so if that starts rolling over, you can get a relief bounce to some of those kind of like growthier types of names and some of the more, say, res recession resistant types of names. But I still think we're in kind of this choppy environment for equities in general. I think it's a pretty when you high say that bounce, when you say that bounce, you're you're talking about in the multiple all of the price, not necessarily the bounce in earnings that are that are predicated on that if there was a reversal in yields. Yeah, more of a bounce in price. Uh, you know, you could also get we have very oversold sentiment in some ways, at least in the tactical sense. And yeah. so, you know, you can get short coverings, you can get these little sentiment boosts here and there when they, when some of the some of the yield pressures start coming off of those valuation multiples. But then I, I still think that second you know, the, the second big shooter drop here is just continued weakening, weakening earnings. And people often think in Boolean terms that the stock market has to go up a ton or crash. And, you know, and often in inflationary recessions, you generally get a, a choppy sideways band that is doing pretty poor in real terms, even if it's not necessarily crashing and it's not soaring. It's just, it's just not the best place to have capital. Yeah, so you, you painted that picture for the equity market. Um, so if I think about that and I think about the playbook that a lot of investors have used for the last two decades, they'd say, okay, choppy equities, you know, maybe some, uh, you know, uh, earnings just only growing in nominal terms. Maybe I should look to allocating the bonds, um, you know, but there also are periods and, and I know you're a student of history too, where, you know, bonds don't, don't help you in real terms either, especially relative to equities as well. And they can underperform, 
uh, as well. So how do you think about this with the fixed income allocation? And what is what is an allocator and investor to do here for this kind of choppiest environment that, you, that you're describing? You know, it makes an inflationary environment so hard for investors that generally broad stocks and bonds are, are both impaired by that, which is different than most other types of economic environments. I, I think, you know, as a, I, I've been a structural bond bear for a while. Um, I, I don't dislike bonds in this point as much as I used to, because we just had a pretty large sell-off. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're starting at signs that, you know, that the recession indicators becoming you know, potentially more important for markets than just the inflation indicators. And so I'm, I'm kind of, less bearish on bonds than normal, you could say that I, I think that they could be certainly due for a relief rally. Um, so I, I think that they do, they can have a position in a portfolio aside from just cash or, or short term cash equivalents. Um, but I think that the way to balance this out is to make sure that that someone has inflationary components in their portfolio as well, because in some ways, stock, especially growth stocks, but you know, large stock indices and bonds in general are, are you know, disinflationary assets. They benefit from Higher productivity, disinflation, um, whereas you know commodities and more inflationary types of things like say, you know, hard monies that don't have to worry about margins. They're they're just you know comparing their supply to the, the the broader supply of currency, for example. Those types of assets can do pretty well in a more stagflationary, inflationary type of environment. So when you go back to the 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 two thousands, the seventies, the forties, these more inflationary decades, generally those real assets, those commodities are the place to be. But of course, the challenge with commodities is that over the long arc of time, commodities are generally not the most uh, profitable sector. Um, uh, commodity producers are notoriously difficult business. They don't even control the price of their own product. Uh, so you don't really have a wide economic moat in most cases, unless you have some sort of really privileged geography. Um, and so it's it's one of those things, it's, it's usually not a great investment, but specifically in those inflationary decades where that slice can really do well for a whole portfolio. It kind of it kind of balanced out the fact that stocks and bonds are both going down together while your commodities are doing pretty well. And I think that there's even middle grounds you can do. For example, I think that the energy pipeline sector, for example, has been been totally washed out over the past, you know, six, seven, eight years. Uh, they, they used to have too much leverage. It used to have uh, too high valuations. That's been totally washed out. I think that's more attractive going forward. And you don't really you don't really have to rely on capital appreciation. You're mostly relying on distributions, yields. Uh, you're basically you're, if you're treading water, you're doing probably better than the broad market in that type of sideways choppy market. So I think it's a, it's more of an environment for value type of stocks, commodities to kind of combine with with the stocks and the bonds in a portfolio. Okay, and then as uh, um, a lot of people have been uh, flourishing in. What about the private asset markets? Uh, is there anything different there? Uh, a lot of folks have, have looked at that and called those alternatives, but we all know that you know they're 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 marked uh, very similar to the public markets as well, right? So, um, is there any benefit into trying to source some of those kind of private markets to help with this uh, potential uh, kind of some of this pain you're going to see there, or is it just essentially doubling down and doing it in a more illiquid structure, and it just doesn't get kind of uh, mark marked to market as frequently? Uh, the latter. I mean, it's a more liquid, uh, higher return potential. I mean, obviously, if someone has interest in certain niches, um, that that's an area where their expertise might be able to allow them to get excess returns, uh, or to you know basically put a capital to work in a, in a place that they have some degree of influence over the over the company. But yeah, I think it's essentially you're you're in a similar position to growth stocks. Uh, we are essentially a, a very long duration asset, uh, and and they're going to be priced similarly. I think that you know, in disinflation environments, you know, the discount rate is so low, the cost of capital is so cheap that it, it's very easy that these high valuation companies with with no you know plans for profitability anywhere in sight. Uh, whereas when you have that more inflationary environment, higher cost of capital, um, that kind of it takes out a lot of investments that are like like uh, peacocks that is you know f- you know all show less utility more like, you know, things that flourish in kind of like more like uh, easy environments. And it's a harder environment now. So you, so you want a company that is faster to profitability, more essential um, and, and less excessive. And so I think that, that this has already taken out a lot of the excess of the market. And in those types of markets, just like public growth stocks, you want to have a clear vision of, of when that company can get profitable. So I, I don't think that's any sort of silver bullet really, other than you know, obviously being a different set of companies than we see in public markets. 
What about the role? And we're talking about a little bit of uh, alternative investments for most uh, investors there. Uh, what role should crypto type of assets play for, for investors, if any? Um, and then also within that, I'd like to get you, you know, your thoughts on you know, the recent fall in price for, for most digital assets, you know, Bitcoin kind of being the, the poster child there. Um, you know, what you think the catalyst is, does it make sense? And, and where do we go from here as well? So it so far in, in, in crypto's pretty brief history uh, as an asset class, uh, it's generally done very well in rising PMI environments uh, and then very poorly in falling PMI environments. Uh, with a caveat that it, because it's, a, it's kind of to- closely tied to liquidity, usually liquidity changes before PMI. And generally, we see that in crypto as well. Usually, Bitcoin bottoms before PMI bottoms. Uh, but there's still generally a pretty tight correlation there. Uh, and so as a risk on asset and as an asset that's very closely tied to liquidity, um, this has been a very rough environment for it. And it's been compounded by the fact that there's, there is so much leverage in the system. Uh, and so it started with the, you know, as liquidity gets pulled out, first you see which, which types of Ponzi type of assets break. So the, the high profile one was Luna, but then that had contagious effects for you know, more, more traditional parts of the market that were just in over leveraged and over their skis into all sorts of other projects. And so we've seen a lot of forced selling, liquidations, capitulations, uh, which, you know, after kind of months of being more, more cautious in the space, I'm actually quite uh, bullish here. Now, I think that we're still in a declining PMI environment. It's still kind of a, a very uncertain period for the next, you know, call it six to 12 months. Um, but I think that it's actually been de-risked compared to, especially from a contrarian perspective, compared to where it was, you know, a year ago. And for me, I mean, structurally, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on Bitcoin and some of the Bitcoin startups, the ecosystem around it. I think that that, you know, that original innovation uh, is actually something bringing new to the table in terms of payment systems and portable value transfer. Uh, and compared to other projects we see, we see in the ecosystem, that was actually pretty decentralized and pretty hard for any sort of entity to change. Whereas what we see a lot of elsewhere in the crypto ecosystem, you see a lot of projects that are, you know, they market themselves as though they're decentralized like Bitcoin, but they're actually quite centralized. And there's still a regulatory gray zone where it's kind of like an environment where penny stocks can market themselves to the public. And so you're going to get a lot of scams. You're going to get a lot of frauds in that sort of space. So my my general message to investors is really kind of to focus on the signal over the noise and that, that Bitcoin offers something of value to a portfolio. Uh, potentially Bitcoin startups as well, uh, whereas I, I generally am a lot more cautious about the broader crypto space. Uh, I, I think that you know when you look at those those crypto bull cycles in history, usually the same projects that do well in one cycle aren't the same projects doing well in, in another cycle three years later. It's like a it's like a rolling set of new participants uh, with only a handful of ones kind of you know steadily gaining value cycle after cycle with, with Bitcoin obviously being being the front runner there. Uh, in the broader space, I do think stable coins are interesting technology that anyone involved in payments has to be at least aware of. Um, but yeah, for me, it's really Bitcoin and stable coins that I think actually have kind of utility here. And a lot of else what we saw, there, there's hints of something there, but I think a lot of it was just speculation, circle leverage, uh, kind of recursive leverage, that sort of thing. So when you you talk about the stablecoin too, uh, I got to come back to the macro and say, what are your thoughts on the central banks uh, issuing their digital currency, or is that just uh, masquerading it as fiat once again? Oh, that's certainly a type of fiat. It's just fiat on different rails. Um, and I, I think you know that this is still early in the story being written. I mean, China's obviously been ahead of the curve. Their you know their goals are more in line with the CBDC, and then also they started earlier. So they already have, you know, a launch there. Other central banks are further behind. Um, and some of them might go the route of, of you know, pu- public-private partnerships, right? So they can essentially turn a stablecoin into a CBDC, right? Instead of, instead of managing their own, um, they can partner with a highly regulated stablecoin issuer and use that as their rails. Um, so essentially what CBDCs are, uh, there's different formats they can take, but they are more programmable types of fiat money. Uh, and so, for example, if, if, a, if a stimulus wanted to give, uh, you know, if a government wanted to give people stimulus, but you can only spend it on energy or food, for example, it can be programmed that way. Um, it, it can be programmed to have different interest rates in different areas. It can be programmed to be used in cer- certain jurisdictions. Uh, you can 
in, in some jurisdictions, if they want to go the extreme route, they can go around the whole banking system entirely. That's obviously very controversial. Um, so there's different formats that, that can take, but it's you know it's a different type of fiat currency. It's just it's applying that to to 21st century rails. Yeah, you know it's funny you mentioned that too because you know as you think about the central banks, their goal is to regulate the banks as well, right? And so it is you know it, it is uh, kind of against their their in clients' interest, right, to do that. And you also mentioned the stimulus. I, I think it's pretty amazing that you know there was just a fine levy to one of the large banks. I won't call them out today. Uh, but for misappropriating the funds of the stimulus, right, of of using the debit cards and everything in an inappropriate manner. So, you know, I, I think it, it it does illustrate the need for when you do this, uh, these type of programs, how you get it to how you get the money to people. And the last time the backlog during the pandemic and, you know, obviously we got it going pretty good after we did it the first time uh, was really just getting it to the end user. Right. It's they had to go through the banking system itself. And so. Um, you know, it definitely is is something that uh, is is interesting, and I, I just want to tie that back to one more thing too. You know, because you were talking about the devaluation of the currencies and everything too. Um, have we seen the death of MMT? Um, you know, is is this the case study where we talked? You know, uh, MMT coming out, the the modern monetary theory um, coming out, and did it really lead to this inflationary side, or what is your take on on MMT? Something I haven't talked to many people about lately. Well, I think it's, you know, the fiscal, so I've been emphasizing since before the inflation happened that the fiscal side is, is the thing to watch. Um, and so it's not just what the Fed's doing, it, it's it's the actual kind of helicopter money and that sort of thing that we saw from Congress. Um, and I, I do think that going forward, policymakers are going to be a lot less likely to touch that. But to MMT's credit, I mean, you know, their point always was that you can stimulate up to the point of inflation. That, that 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 is ultimately the constraint that you know you don't run out of money you run out of you know the value of money right and so it, it's about using those productivity I, I think the the you know partly it's the size of the stimulus that we did that was inflationary but then it's also the you know whether or not that was productive and so if you go back to say the 1940s and all that wartime financing you know a lot of that wartime financing was actually domestic stimulus you were building up factories you were you know when, when, when the soldiers came home from the war you did gi bills so you got like eight million of them educated uh you gave them uh like it was kind of like ppp loans we gave them basically uh backing for their mortgage uh mm -hmm. you know make sure that their interest rates were low um and, and but a lot of that was productive i mean so you had this inflationary spike but then we, we got a new a lot of new stuff because of it we had new factories we had new commodity production we had a, an educated workforce and that's actually disinflationary that's kind of the platonic ideal of mmt uh, whereas what we got this time was you know a lot of money out there a lot of it went to ppp loans it turned into grants for you know pretty wealthy business owners that many cases were not even planning on on laying off employees um it just wasn't very targeted. And at the end of the day, we have a lot more money in the system and not a lot more stuff in the system. Okay. Um, and so that that's it's, it's both the magnitude and the in the type and how it was done. Um, and so I think I think that, that that shotgun approach is probably behind us. Um, I think that this decade, whenever you have shortages or things like that, we could see more targeted fiscal. I, I think that now now that you know the industry lever is less less effective than it was. I think that fiscal might be a bigger tool that they resort to, but I think they're going to be more targeted. So things like energy stimulus that we see in, in Europe and, and some states, for example, um, you know, basically giving people taxes back on their on their on their fuel costs or giving them checks that can be used for that sort of thing or to offset that. I think that's going to be more common going forward. Um, but I think we saw that, yeah, there are limits to how much money you can print um, before you cause inflation. And I think in there's always recency bias. So in, in disinflationary environments, people have a tough time imagining how you get inflation. Uh, in an inflationary environments, you have a tough time imagining how you can ever get back to disinflation. Right. Uh, so in the, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, they were like, this is, this is going to be like this forever. It's always going to be inflationary. And then in the, you know, the, this whole kind of 2010s period with, with oil oversupply and slow economic growth, people are like, how, you, know, you can never get inflation. There's too much debt to get inflation. Demographics are too bad. We can just print trillions. It won't be inflationary. But it was, and I think we 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 saw the limits to that. Yeah, you mentioned the gas uh, checks too, and so I had briefly mentioned it to my mother, you know, maybe a month ago. And every week she's like, "When are we getting that check? When are we getting that?" So all of a sudden, like she she wants to help stimulate the economy with it because she keeps asking me about it. So, 
Yeah, it's a good way to, to fight some of the, the high gas prices and inflation is to give out more free money for, <laughs> for the exact same thing. But uh, there's a lot of negative stuff that we're talking about here. You know, like be it macro ne- negative economic indicators, uh, data looks like it's weakening still. You know, when we look at markets outside of commodities, although it's been a recent fall of weakness for commodities as well, but on the price basis, you know, you look at traditional asset classes, it's all pretty negative out there. Yeah, as we wrap this up, you know, just thinking about something, trying to find something positive out there. Is there a bullish catalyst that you might be looking out for to say, you know, prices are, again, the fundamentals might be a little bit different, but just from a price basis, things are so negative here. Is there something out there that you're looking for, like a, almost a switch that you know, needs to be flipped before you start to think about things from a more, um, you know, pr- productive uh, lens? Yeah, I think one one headline to always be aware of is the possibility for de-escalation over in Europe. Uh, I think that would both sentiment-wise and then in terms of just some of the uncertainty around that, um, you know, and logistics around that, obviously could could have a positive impact on markets if that were to occur. Um, another one would be uh, China, um, you know, having a clear path forward, stimulating, uh, ending some of their lockdown cycles. Uh, you know, kind of clarification from that part of the world. Um, and its impact on the on the broader macro picture, um, and a third would be basically uh, one of those bad news becomes good news types of environments where you know treasury market liquidity problems happen. The Fed is forced to you know kind of pause their tightening uh, due to economic deterioration or liquidity problems in the markets, uh, and then you can get some sort of relief rally from that. And then of course the the key question becomes how bad are earnings uh, in that weakened environment? Uh, and so if if you're focusing on companies that have you know, maybe their earnings are still great, but they're, they've just been under valuation pressure. Uh, that's the type of environment where that sort of, of, of asset could do well. That also could could give things like gold or Bitcoin a bounce because they have no margins to worry about. And so really they're, they're you know, they're pushed down by the dollar itself hardening. And so the dollar stops hardening, some of those quote unquote harder monies get it, you know, they, they, they do better in more dovish environments. Um, and so I think that there are, catalysts like that that can turn around at least parts of the market. Because as you point out, we, we do have very low sentiment right now. Everyone's everyone's sure we're going to recession. Everyone's worried about housing. Everyone's worried about everything, right? And so some of these, you know, it, it all happens on the margin. So I think the smallest thing could at least trigger a bear market rally or, you know, maybe a shift to more sideways type of choppy action, things like that. I'm kind of on the lookout for different release valves like that, uh, as well as you know that how the Fed's more dovish policy, if they kind of start slowing down some of their plans by the by the fall, could you know have the dollar stop going just straight up like it has been? Yeah, um, you know, I I just think like as you as you go through all of that, I I'm just hoping that maybe the bad news can be good news because I feel like all we're getting is bad news day in day out. It feels like it's been you know nine months of bad news. So, um, but you know, again, I think that's the old saying. I forget is it was it uh, was it Templeton that said it. But you know, bull markets are built on pessimism, right? You, you got to get there to to get things repriced in order to get things at attractive valuation. So, uh, Lynn, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, we really enjoyed it. I think yeah, there's a lot in there too that you know, getting that independent view of how you, you put together your research. I think you can really tell the, the amount of work you put into this stuff. So thank you again. Uh, for our listeners out there, where can they get in touch with you or how can they get in touch with you, follow you? Uh, what kind of uh, uh, contact points do you have out there? Uh, so I'm at lynnalden.com. That's the best way to find my work. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter active at lynnaldencontact. Okay, perfect. So uh, for our listeners out there, I uh, highly recommend uh, the follow out there on, on Twitter. Uh, check out the website and, and and get in touch with Lynn with some of her research. So thanks again for spending time. But Lynn, I'd be remiss uh, to let you go without showing you Sam's favorite part of the show. Sam? Yeah, and my favorite part of the show, Lynn, is called Sherman Says. I will offer a series of alternating uh, unique prompts between you and Sherman, to which I hope to get a top of mind one word response. If not one word, let's try to keep it concise, unlike Sherman. Uh, but let's let Sherman uh, give you the example first and see if he can, he can uh, nail it with Nick Timoros of the WSJ. Blue horseshoe. <laughs> 
Sideline. I don't know if that's one word, but <laughs> it'll take it. It'll like a good it. reference. It was a good one. It was a good okay. one. All right. All right. Over to you, Lynn, with sideline cash. Not as much as people think. U.S. dollar. Winning. Nord Stream. Wild card. <laughs> Great resignation. Debatable. Heat wave. Temporary. U.S. housing. This one word's killing me, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> take it out. Take it out. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think uh, the outlook is more stable than most think. All right. I thought you were going to take it a little bit farther. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to start. <laughs> All right. Uh, back to you, Lynn, with global monetary system. It's called the fiat currency system, I guess you could say. Structural change. Stagflation. Precipice. I still think you need the job losses to have true stagflation, though. All right. And then the last one to round it all up is shrinkflation. Happening. All right. It seems to be everywhere that you shop anymore, right? (laughs) So, all right, Lynn. uh, Hopefully you had a good time with uh, Sam's favorite part of the show, too. Thank you again for spending time with us. Let everyone dig into your insights. Um, uh, for our listeners out there, you can always catch these uh, uh, podcasts as well on YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash double line capital, all one word. Uh, you can also uh, get this on your iPhone through iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, all those great podcast servers out there as well. So uh, stay tuned. We'll have another guest coming up in a couple of weeks. And thank you for listening to the Sherman Show today. Thank you again, Lynn Alden, for joining us. Thanks for having me. intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 DoubleLine Capital.